The children of Israel are out of the land of Egypt now. They are into the wilderness. They are through the Red Sea. And we had the song of Moses in chapter 15. It was also the song of Miriam, but it's known as the song of Moses. And that was a big mile marker in the book of Exodus. As far as I'm concerned, that, that's act one is over. And most of the movies end it right here. This is a good place to end. We made it through the Red Sea, big musical number, and we're done. But of course, we know that's not the end of the story. Even in our own lives, and we have big moments, there's a whole lot of life that is still left to be lived. And now they must look to the future. And they are through the Red Sea, and they have been delivered from Pharaoh, but they are still in the wilderness. And we have talked about this many times. The wilderness is, of course, a real place in the Bible. But it also is a very symbolic place of the training ground where God tests and prepares people for the future he has prepared for them. Deuteronomy chapter 8, which was written after they finished their sojourn in the wilderness, described that time this way. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Why would he do that? Why in the wilderness for 40 years? That he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So as they were leaving the wilderness, the Lord was reminding them the purpose of the wilderness, which was to train them and teach them to obey the Lord's commandments, to trust his provision, and to realize that the source and supply of their life was not the bread that they ate or the money they made, but the God that supplied it to them. Israel had seen God provide miraculous deliverance out of Egypt. Ten plagues the signs that Moses demonstrated, the Red Sea parting and then coming back together. But would they have enough faith to trust him in the mundane day-to-day -day existence as they traveled through the wilderness? The wilderness is where we are stretched. God wants to find the limits of your faith. God wants to see how far you're willing to trust him. And when you get to the point where you begin to hesitate, that's where God puts the pressure. Because he's trying to train you and discipline you to strengthen your faith. If you only ever go to the gym and do what feels comfortable and you're never stretched or pushed, you're never going to grow. You're never going to improve. And this is why a good coach is able to tell where your breaking point is and keep you right there so that your breaking point goes a little bit farther. This is what God is doing with Israel and he wants to do with us as well. Deuteronomy 8.5, a verse that came a little bit later, describes the wilderness as a place of discipline. Not discipline in terms of punishment, discipline in terms of training. Maybe you have faith for God to save your soul, but do you trust him to provide for your daily bread? You know that a shadow of a doubt you're going to heaven when, when the roll's called up yonder, you're going to be there. But when it comes to making the bills this month, you're, you're a panicky mess. Can you trust God in the mundane in addition to the miraculous? And we're going to see the three tests of faith, the first three that Israel faced, if you don't count the Red Sea, which I suppose I would count. But it, it's a, these are reminders of the kinds of things that are everyday miracles that ought not to be taken for granted. And that the little things that God does for us every day ought to build our faith for the big moments when they come, as frightening as they may be. So there's three big sections here. 
And uh, the, the one in the middle is the biggest one, so we'll spend most of our time there. But let's begin by reading the end of Exodus 15, starting at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. If you remember from the book of Ruth, Naomi changes her name to Marah because Marah means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log or a tree and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water." So they leave behind the Red Sea. This is Yam Suf. We had a whole discussion about what that is. And they enter the wilderness of Shur. Now, a lot of these location names really depend, where you place them depend on where you identify the Red Sea crossing and where you identify Mount Sinai. Uh, but Shur is one of those few that is actually pretty clearly identified in the Bible. And in my opinion, gives us further clues that the Red Sea, as it's described here, that they crossed was in fact the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the eastern Gulf of the Red Sea. So just very briefly to kind of get our bearings here. Shur in the Bible, S-H-U-R is always described as being south of Canaan. So, south of Canaan. Genesis 25 verse 18 describes Shur as opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. It also can be translated east of Egypt, but the word east is perhaps better translated opposite. So, this is the Nile Delta where they came from, and they either crossed the Red Sea here or here. This is the Gulf of Aqaba, the Eastern Gulf. This is the Gulf of Suez, which is the Western Gulf. And sure, the desert is either identified here or here, obviously, depending on where they cross the Red Sea. Now, it says that Shur was east or opposite of Egypt. You've got this big peninsula here. So a lot of people, including myself, agree that Shur would be the opposite side of that peninsula. And it says that you get to Assyria from Egypt by going through Shur. Now, Assyria is going to be off the screen there to the right a little bit. So it makes good sense. If, if Shur is right here, essentially in the boundaries of Egypt, it's like saying, well, if you want to get to California, uh, you know, you start at Virginia and then you go to Tennessee and then you're in California. So you're skipping over a big section. You know what I'm saying? So that, that's one indication why we believe that it would be right there. It says in Genesis 20 verse one that Abraham spent time in the Negev, which is between Kadesh and Shur. Kadesh is right here on the boundary of the promised land. The Negev is right here. So if we place Shur all the way over there, it seems odd. It would be more natural to place it right over here, which lines up with what we believe about where the Red Sea is. Shur is also called the land of the Amalekites. A lot of battles against the Amalekites will be fought in the land of Shur. We know where the Amalekites lived. They lived more or less right around here. And the, it, we also know that Shur was located or at least associated with the land called Havilah, which traditionally was closer to uh, the region of Babylon and Persia and that part of 
the land, so uh, a farther western location seems unlikely. As I said before, all this is is geography that adds color to the story. So if the way that I'm going to be explaining this and describing this is th they're right over here in what's called the Arabian Peninsula, not what has been come to be called the traditional Sinai Peninsula. If you disagree, that's okay. You can still go to heaven. We're going to have, it's not a big deal really, but it is, it's good to make these determinations. So just, that was just one more reason why I, uh, I, I chose the region that I did when I taught it last time. But in any case, they're three days out from the Red Sea and they have no water. And they arrive at a spring at a place that would become called Mara that is not drinkable. Can you imagine anything more disheartening than showing up to an oasis in the desert and the water is nasty? You draw that first bucket up out of the well or you dip it into the spring and there's millions of people waiting for you and you take that first drink and, and you spit it all up. It's brackish. It's, it's full of sediment. It's salty. You can understand their panic here. They grumbled against the Lord. They grumbled actually against Moses. And Moses cried out to God and God gave Moses a miracle in the wilderness. He showed him a log or a tree or a branch, depending on your translation. And he picked it up and threw it in the water. And that miraculously made the water sweet. Now, one of my commentators tried to get cute and say, now there are all kinds of trees that can make salinated water drinkable. I'm like, I don't think there are. Um, <laughs> the, the whole point of this is that it's a miracle, right? This was their first test. Are they going to trust the Lord, even in dire straits, to save them? And as I said at the beginning, it's ironic that we can see God do incredible acts of salvation yesterday, but doubt him today for something smaller. Is God master of water? Haven't we learned that by now in the book of Exodus? He turned the Nile River to blood. He parted the Red Sea and then closed the Red Sea again. And now they can't get water. Why are they worried? This is like in Matthew 16, where the disciples are getting in the boat. Jesus had, had multiplied the loaves and the fishes for the second time. And they get in the boat and they realize they don't have any bread. They're all out of bread and they start to panic and they start to like get on each other's case about who forgot to bring the bread. You're supposed to bring the bread. And Jesus gets on and he's, you know, not really thinking about that at that time. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they say, he's talking about leaven because we forgot the bread. And Jesus like exasperated says to them, didn't you see me multiply those five loaves so that you had 12 baskets left over? And then there was the 4,000 people and I multiplied those so that there were seven baskets left. Why are y'all worried about bread? Why are you afraid that I can't provide for the 13 people on this boat when I've been able to provide for thousands of families? It's so ridiculous and it's, it's a little humorous. They were afraid they were going to go hungry in the boat when Jesus was in the boat. They had the bread of life with them and they're worried about the bread they were going to have for breakfast. So Christian, if you trust God to save you from sin and death, why do you doubt his provision and his help today? Why, are you, why do you think that God is going to somehow save your soul, but when you come to ask him for a lesser thing, and just about anything would be less than salvation, wouldn't it? Why are we afraid to ask? Or why do we doubt? Why do we get angry? God, you are not providing. You're not giving what you said. It was God who had led Israel out of Egypt. He had quite literally led them out of Egypt. The pillar of cloud and fire had brought them to Mara. They kind of keep forgetting that, that God is right there. He's led us here. They get mad at Moses, like Moses was a magician that was doing party tricks in the desert. Did they really think he was just going to abandon them? Now, we, we see at the end of that chapter that Elim, the oasis, 
that had palm trees and plenty of water was right around the corner. But they had to go through Mara to get there. But how many believers have turned back when the waters get bitter and never make it to the oasis? Because they think there's no way. They did not have enough faith. This is the kind of testing that God introduces. He allows you to thirst. This is important. They hadn't done anything wrong here. Not every crisis or problem or shortage that comes into your life is is a punishment against you. It's not all that you've done something wrong. But God could very well be testing you. Testing your faith. Because God knows your faith and your soul is more important than your water. So the Lord is willing to allow you to go thirsty for a while in order to check your heart. And the Lord knows your heart, but a lot of times we think we're stronger than we are. We have so much faith. I will never walk away from the Lord. And then God allows a crisis into your life. Say a global pandemic. And we all see where we really are. We all see how much faith we really have. We all see when something is removed and you begin to panic, it's God's way of demonstrating that's what your faith was in. You thought your faith was in me, but now your mother is gone. Your faith was in your mother, not me. You thought your faith was in me, but then your party lost the election. Your faith really wasn't in me. It was in the party, wasn't it? All kinds of things. Your pastor died. Your faith was in the pastor, not in me. God will allow us to suffer deprivation because he wants to remind us as he says there, I am the Lord, your healer. You know, this, this is almost a, a pass that he gives him on this one. He says, guys, I'm just trying to teach you. You're not going to suffer from thirst or anything else when you're with me. I'm your healer. I'm Yahweh Rapha, Jehovah Rapha, the healer. And guys, that's who our Lord is for us. Romans 8.32 says that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's, God gave us his son. So what, what is he going to say no to? If God is willing to give you his only son dead on the cross, are you going to show up and say, God, I need your provision to, to make this payment? No, I can't give that to you. Who are you to ask that of me? Lord, I need you to heal my body. I've been struggling. I'm not going to heal you. That's unfair of you to ask that. No, God's already given Jesus. Everything else is less than that. You know, you can almost insult somebody when they give you a great gift and then you're hesitant to ask for a small one. You've got to trust that God is leading you. He's able to sustain you in the desert. And that when you feel like everything's running out, God is your provider. And very often the Lord will allow us to go through even extended periods of deprivation so that we can learn to trust him. He's going to dig those roots down deep because they've been shallow and he knows there's a lot of life left and it's going to be a long eternity. So let's, let's take some time and get in the spiritual gym, so to speak, and strengthen you. Well, chapter 16, they set out from Elim and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, not wilderness of Sin, this is Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They leave the oasis and they come to the wilderness of Sin. Why is it called the wilderness of Sin? Because it is like Sinai. The wilderness of Sin is the wilderness that is close to Sinai. So remember, this is not an English word. It's not like the, the, the wilderness of evil or something like that, okay? It's, it's related to Sinai. 
And that desert, of course, depends on where you identify the Mount Sinai, which we'll talk about more next time. But it's been a month since they left Egypt. The people are hungry and they're out of food. No food left. They brought all their food with them. They had trusted the Lord to provide for them. And now it's gone. Now they've left the oasis and there's no food left. And they begin to say, I wish we'd just stayed in Egypt. At least we had big pots of meat. Yeah, we were slaves and everything, but don't focus on the negative, man. We, at least we had food. It's unfortunate how often they're going to say this, that they wistfully remember Egypt. Satan has a way of blurring the memory of what your slavery to sin was like. This is the major temptation of the wilderness. Satan will try to convince you that it is better to live in sin so that you can meet your own needs. That I am hungry and in order to get this food, I must sin. Serving God is what is keeping me hungry. Following Jesus is what is keeping me broke. Being a Christian is what is keeping me from having a happy life. To convince you that your hunger in the wilderness is a sign of God's indifference or displeasure. And to convince you that the only way out of this situation is to return back to your sin. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense on the surface of it, does it? We say, well, I, I wish I was, I was still a sinner. Why would you say that? Well, I mean, I had so much fun and I had all kinds of money. and I, Yeah, but your life was a wreck. Don't you remember that? And you were desperate all the time and you were suicidal. and you, Yeah, but at least there was money. I was like, Do you think that God is the one keeping that from you? And that the solution to your money troubles is to abandon God and go crooked again? This is what the temptation was for Jesus. Matthew 4, 1 through 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus in the story of his temptation in the wilderness is, is reliving what Israel had gone through, except he is succeeding where they failed. Jesus was hungry. He says, you're the son of God. You shouldn't have to play by these men's rules. You have the power to snap your fingers and turn those stones into bread. Why don't you just do it? And Jesus is saying, because we don't live by bread alone, which is what Deuteronomy says. We read that verse earlier. His faith was shown to be stronger than his hunger. And that is where God needs to get you. To where your faith is stronger than your fear, stronger than your hunger or your thirst, stronger than your lust or your panic over being deprived. I need, I need to tell you all this. Daily difficulties are not signs that God has abandoned you. Things like hunger or thirst. Maybe you've never had to worry where your meal is going to come from, but... Those things are not signs that God has abandoned you. Fatigue, money troubles, inconveniences, difficult people. They're not signs that God has abandoned you. And your reactions to those things tells you where your faith stands. You want to know how full of faith am I? How full of the Spirit? How joyful am I? How do you react when you lose your job? How did you react when you lost a loved one? How did you react when you were hungry or thirsty or tired? How many, uh, let's just say this, how many of us make excuses for our behavior when we're tired? I know I shouldn't talk to him like that, but I, I'm just so tired. I know I shouldn't say that about those people, but I'm tired. I haven't slept right. And 
When have you ever slept right? Come on. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're always you're never getting enough or you're getting too much or you've been working too hard or you've been sick or the kids are awake. Or whatever. You can't blame your actions on your fatigue or your hunger. I was just hangry. Please excuse me. No, no, no. Your reaction to the troubles of life, the daily difficulties, should tell you where your faith stands. And God had just told them he was testing them. And yet they start complaining. They, the first one, it says, okay, I fixed the problem right away. Next time y'all are thirsty, you got to remember, I'm the one that takes good care of you. Well, this time we're not thirsty, we're hungry. God's going to kill us. And Moses just brought us out here to die. And they, they didn't have a whole lot of faith, did they? But we do the same thing, don't we? Didn't Jesus tell us that we were going to be hated by the world and that we were going to have difficulty, but to take heart because he's overcome the world? Didn't he tell us to set our sights on the things that are above, not on the things of earth? But we panic and we see that our faith is not as strong as we thought it was. If you're broken by small things, my brother or sister, you'll never stand amid great things. We can daydream about, they'll never break me. And Satan goes, I don't have to break you. I just have to make you tired. I can make you do whatever I want after that. Don't fail the test. Don't look at little things as signs of God's displeasure. Look at them as a chance to discipline yourself in the faith. Verse 4 now. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from the heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. There it is again. Whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. There's a great lesson I'm not going to dive into there on leadership, spiritual leadership, and how God takes it very personally when his people do not respect the leaders he's placed over them. Verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So, the Lord takes advantage of the grumbling of the children of Israel about their hunger to test their potential obedience to his law. He's going to begin laying down the law for the first time before they get to Sinai. And so he tells Moses, get the people together and tell them to wait for me. I'm going to do something glorious. They gather the people. It says the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I imagine that was a wonderful thing to see, wasn't it? Here's the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire that followed them or led them everywhere. And, 
And it says the glory of the Lord appeared there. We don't know if it shone. Maybe during the daytime it just ignited in flame. Maybe they could hear voices coming out of it. These are all kinds of things the Bible will describe. But they knew that God was there. And he spoke to Moses. He says, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to take care of you. And he sends them first quail in the evening. This is not to be confused later with Numbers chapter 11 when God is going to give them quail as a punishment. And he's going to turn it into a plague because they were complaining. This is a one-time gift. It's not going to come every day like the manna would. But in the morning, there's bread on the ground. These were not loaves. Don't think of little loaves and cakes of bread on the ground. He says it was like the frost. You've been out in the morning and you've seen the, the frost on the ground. They get out into the, to the wilderness and there's this stuff everywhere. It says it was flaky. It was delicate. You could pick it up and, and break it off and you could you know, hold it in your hand. And we call that manna. We get that name because the word is there for what is it in Hebrew is manhu, which is what is that? What is this? And the name they give it is the, is the word man. In English, as we anglicize it, we add the A at the end, mana, but they would call it man in Hebrew. And the word man is not exactly the word what. That's the word ma in Hebrew. And it's close to the word for who. So I love the way one of my commentators put it. He said the best way to understand what the word manna means is like, whatchamacallit. <laughs> this, this, whatever it is. That's what we'll call it. We'll call it whatever it is. We'll call it manna. And I found some weird people that wanted to try to give natural explanations of where manna came from. The most common one was there's this certain bug that lives in this tree and it eats the sap and then it secretes this substance in the desert that you can eat and the Bedouins will live off of it. First of all, ew. Second of all, that's not what it says. Thirdly, how are you going to feed millions of people every day, but not on Saturdays? I mean, could God do that? Yes. But if we're stretching for that much of a miracle, why not just go with the one the Bible's already given us, which says it came with the dew. It was a miracle from heaven. Psalm 78 has a great description of this, poetic description. It says, He commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. I don't know what that implies about the diet of angels. It could just be poetry, or it could be very well that that is what God sent his people to eat. So it's an awesome miracle. Imagine coming out of your tent, and there's just this, this sheen across the desert, and you start picking it up and smelling it, and somebody starts tasting it. What is this? And Moses is like, that's the bread that God said he was going to provide for you. How amazing. But you know what the thing is? Later on, Israel is going to complain about the manna. In Numbers eleven six, 6, it said, Every day, all that we have to look at is this manna. Manna for breakfast and manna for lunch and manna for dinner. I'm sick of it. I can't take manna anymore. It's like, you mean the miraculous bread that dews on the ground every morning that God miraculously preserves for you? You're tired of that, are you? It's, it's unbelievable that you could get sick of something like that or get used to something like that or take it for granted. But you know, Christian, most miracles, most acts of divine intervention happen in the everyday. They're just as wonderful as the parting of the Red Sea, but we see them so often, we get used to them. We overlook their importance. And we say, where has God been in my life? And somebody tries to remind you, manna from heaven every day. Oh, well, you can't count that one. Well, why exactly not? We get used to them. 
Psalm 103 verses 2 through 5 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. What are some examples of everyday miracles, things that happen and we don't even think about them because they're so wonderful? How about your health? Bless the Lord who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases. I'm not even talking about miraculous healing right now. I'm just talking about the fact that we get sick and we get better. Well, of course. No, no, no. Not well, of course. That's God that does that for you. Well, we know how nature works and we know how it all, this, this is how the body and the immune system work. Well, who made it that way? Science is really good at telling us how things work. It's terrible at telling us why things work. God is the one that gives you your health. How about the changing of the seasons? The day, the day and night cycle. The fact that it gets dark and quiet and everybody kind of goes to sleep for a while. That it gets really hot in the summer and then you start to get sick of it and then it changes and it gets a little colder. Then you get sick of it and it starts to change again. The seasons. Your access to food and shelter. Now there are, of course, people that are deprived and are in hardship, but by and large, the Lord provides for you. You've never had a, had a day where you were like, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to eat ever again. We, we get upset if we have to miss lunch. We get upset if we have to have a late lunch. I usually get my lunch at 1130 and this meeting's going long. And the line at Chick-fil-A is going to be double wrapped around the building. That's, why does everything happen to me? You know, about the, I mean, every parent says this and you can roll your eyes about the miracle of childbirth. I love saying this when I see one of our little kids, especially at my son Samuel's age, he's getting a little bigger now. So he still looks like a baby, but he's starting to look more like, you know, human. And I'll, and I'll, I'll say, I'll say, cat, look, He's like a little person. She goes, he is a little person. And it's, it's fun to tease like that because it's, you, you kind of, for a while, the baby almost kind of feels like this object that you have to carry around with you. And then kind of you have a moment, you're like, this thing's alive and it knows me and it can talk to me and it's going to get up and walk and we're going to be friends maybe. And this is, it's, that's a miraculous thing. Oh, that's, that's, that's just reproduction. It happens every day all over the world. I know, isn't it wonderful? That, that's a totally different perspective to have, isn't it? To say something happens all the time, therefore it's boring and I'm unimpressed by it. Or something happens all the time, therefore I'm all the more impressed by it. Because it just keeps going on. The Bible talks about the Lord holding back the seas and saying that's as far as you can go. It's all in the Lord's hands. And it's all just as miraculous as manna from heaven. And it is a test of your faith to acknowledge these things as a sufficient reason to obey the Lord. Remember, God is using the manna to lead them to begin to obey his law. If God is going to provide all those things for you, then isn't he worth obeying? So many people want to shake their fist in God's face and say the way he's made his world is not fair, yet they live under the same common grace and the wonders of the world that every one of us get to live in with no gratitude. And we dare not... Hold that against them too harshly because we can do the same thing. And the fact that you get to come to church once, twice, three times a week and be refreshed to keep going with your life. The fact that you've got the word of God that speaks to you every time you open it up. The fact that you can talk to God because Jesus died on the cross and opened up the way of your salvation. The fact that your guilt over your life has been removed at the cross and the empty tomb. Don't overlook those things. They're just as wonderful as manna from heaven, aren't they?
Well, they've got a few lessons they've got to learn here. So let's start at verse 16. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. There are all kinds of lessons that I could have drawn out about what manna teaches us about hard work and, and personal discipline. But we're just going to focus on, on a, a few different things here. They're the rules of manna that we see here. This is not God just giving the bread and then you can do whatever you want with it. No, God very actively managed how the manna was to be handled. And from these, we can learn a few lessons about how to trust God daily. Because the daily miracles that we go through, they're to build our faith for the big moments. Right? The manna from heaven trains us for when the water runs out. So how can we make sure we're taking full advantage of the daily miracles that God sends? Well, the first thing we see is that they were to gather one omer of manna. An omer is about two liters worth of manna. Every day per person. Remember, there was more than 600,000 men plus their families. So there are millions of people. There was plenty for everybody. And you see this, that those who gathered a lot had nothing left over. And those who had a little did not have any lack. So no one was able to hoard it. And get more than everybody else and say, ah, oh, you can have some of my manna if you give me 10 bucks. No one was able to hoard it. And there was nobody that could not find enough. God provided. What's the lesson? God knows what you need and he's able to provide it for you. To the exact measure that you need it. Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. I was in Nepal and we saw a troop of Hare Krishnas coming down the way. And if you've never seen this, it's a wild thing. But they were beating the drums and playing their, their instruments. And they were leaping and whirling and spinning in the air. And just Hare Krishna over and over again. Because they think that if they do that, they're going to enter this altered state of mind. And they'll be able to commune with their God. And Jesus goes, don't do that with me. Don't think that you, I said a hundred words in this prayer, therefore it's more powerful than the one that had five. I'll say this prayer this many times and then, then it'll really be good. He says, don't do that. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that good to know? That God knows what you need and he's able to give it to you. You're not going to show up to God and say, Lord, this is what I need. He's going to go, whoa, okay. Well, uh, I get paid on Friday. Why don't you come by on Monday? <laughs> Now, we know that God provides all our needs, so what's the issue? We often want more than what we need. And we compare ourselves to other people. Manna was a great equalizer. Everybody had as much as they needed and not a little bit more. No less, but no more. Now, you could have said, well, why does that family get 10 omers of manna? Because they got 10 people in that family. Well, I want 10. Well, you, you only have two in your family. Manna was not a feast. It was not a chance for them to get out and gorge themselves on the bread of the angels. And nor should we expect that God's provision for your needs is going to be provision of great riches and excessive toys. There are folks that consider God that way. They think all you got to do is butter him up and he'll give you whatever you want. The Bible says with two things we are to be content. You know what they are? With food 
and clothing, we are to be content. Pretty much all of us have that, which tells us that we all ought to be content. But just take a look at, you know, I don't, I don't want to get, make, do this kind of message, but, you know, pretty much every strata of society now, every political group, whatever, is so full of envy at some people having or not having. But when you look at our own society, what are we comparing? The guy that has three cars or the guy that has one car? We're comparing the guy that, that has two iPhones versus the guy that has five iPhones, whatever. The guy that has a mansion versus the guy that has a house. Like, you go anywhere else in the world and every one of these guys is rich. So what are we arguing about? What, 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 are we, what are we talking about here? The Bible tells us that you should be content with what you have. And you sit and look at, well, that person has more than me. It's not fair. God is the one that determines what you sh shall and shall not have. Envy, Christian, is a terrible thing to cultivate. And you dare not judge God by what somebody else has. That is no way to go through your life. In his wisdom, God has given what he's given. And you ought to be content with that. Maybe you are the kind of person that you couldn't handle being rich. If God gave you millions of dollars, you would blow all that money and lose your soul in a, in a frivolous pursuit of pleasure. So God goes, I'm not giving you money. I know what will happen if I give you money. Maybe there are those that are very wealthy that the Lord knows the greatest temptation they could ever face is not having anything. So in my graciousness, I'm going to make sure that they never suffer lack so that I can protect them. And that's God's kindness at work. But meanwhile, we sit back and that's not fair. The Lord goes, what do you know of fair? You don't have all the information like I do. Be content with what God's given you. The good news is there's enough for everybody and it comes every day. Be content with that. Verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. <laughs> same old, same old. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So here's the second thing. They did try to hoard their manna and it rotted overnight. How do you like to wake up and say, what is that smell? It's the manna. There's bugs and worms and, ah, and they throw it outside. And there's the, there's the new manna. There's the old man rotting on the floor. <laughs> Moses got mad. They come and complain. Look what happened to my man. And he goes, well, didn't I tell you not to hoard it overnight? Well, it doesn't make any sense. That would only last one day. It doesn't make any sense that bread would snow from heaven either. But here we are. <laughs> and it also melted in the hot sun. So, you know, early to bed, early to rise, right? The lesson here is that God only provided enough for one day, which meant you needed faith every morning. And every night, every night as you dumped out what was left over of your manna, it was an act of faith that it was going to be there the next day. But if you did not have that faith and you held on to it, you woke up to a nasty smell in your tent. Matthew 6, 11, what did Jesus teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. It's probably a reference obliquely to manna that came day by day. God always provides enough to get through each day. And that should be enough for us. We stress out, not because we think God can't get us through today, because I don't know if God will get me through this year, or the next 10 years, or the next five years, or the next six months, or the next week. God goes, I'll get you through today. Well, I know you'll get me through today, but if I can just get through tomorrow, remember what Jesus said about that too? Don't worry about tomorrow. But tomorrow has plenty to worry about for itself. 
You just trust that I'm going to get you through this day. Oh, it's not very forward thinking, Jesus. Oh, yes, it is. Because he told that other story of the guy that saved all his crops in barns. And he says, and tomorrow I'm going to expand and I'm going to have more. And he goes, yeah, well, you're going to die tonight. Now what? <laughs> Jesus was a little in, in your face with some of those parables, wasn't he? Our problem is that we don't want God to give us daily bread. We want him to pile up bread in our backyard so that we never have to worry about it again. The thing is, God only gives daily bread. You try to hoard up God's blessings and they will turn rotten as you covet and lust over them. Look at all this that God's given us. Let's bury it in the backyard and we'll just take out a little bit as we need it and we'll, we'll never worry about it again. That's no way to live. Conversely, you ignore God's blessings when they come and they'll vanish in the sun. God wants to teach you daily obedience so that you're prepared for the big moments. If you come to the end of the day, whew, I don't know how I made it through that day. That's your time to thank the Lord and say, God, you gave me my daily bread. You gave me what I needed. Every time you sit down to have breakfast, you, by the way, you should pray for your food because you, you, you're not guaranteed that from anybody except the Lord. Hey, God, you gave me food again today. Hey, thank you, Lord. I got to eat three times today. Four times, five times. I don't know your life. <laughs> Daily obedience. Why? Because if you know that God has provided for you every single day up till now, when the big crisis comes, he goes, yeah, okay. He's done this every single day. He's going to take care of me. And this also, by the way, there's another great talk we could have here about the lessons that you learn from God. You've got to have daily grace from the Lord. You don't try to live your life off of the manna that you got when you first got saved. Try, oh, I learned this great lesson when I, when I rededicated my life to Christ. Okay, but what about since then? Have you gone back out and gathered new manna, or are you just trying to live off the old stuff? Renew the grace daily. God's not your vending machine. Have a relationship with the Lord. Verse 22, On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. It's a good start to the day. <laughs> Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you this Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. There's our third manna lesson. Commands them to gather twice as much on Friday and to rest on Saturday. This is the first time that the Sabbath was mandated for the children of Israel. It's been referenced a few times. That word Sabbath, Shabbat, which means to rest or to cease. We're very familiar with that word, but it's just good to remember. This is the first time the Lord tells them you're going to rest. What God did is he preserved the manna an extra day. And he did not send manna on the seventh day. So any attempt to explain this naturally just falls short. These were miracles. It's also interesting in verse 23 there, it tells us how they ate it. It was bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. So apparently the manna was taken home and it was baked or it was boiled into something. Numbers 11 verse 8 
tells us that the people went about and gathered it, ground it in hand mills, or beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. So, I love those little details that the Bible gives us that, you know, they didn't just eat it off the ground, they prepared food with it. It was an ingredient that God gave them. But some of them still failed. They didn't gather extra and they had nothing on Saturday. And then they went out on Saturday to find it and Moses is frustrated again and God rebukes them. Because you didn't obey my law. I laid down the law of the Sabbath and you broke it. This is a preliminary to the covenant that he's going to make with them at Mount Sinai. What's the manna lesson for us here? If you don't obey God's commandments, you should not expect his promises to work for you. The Lord said, I'm going to provide for you every single day. Okay, but on Friday, you got to collect two days. No problem. Hey, where's my manna? You were supposed to collect it yesterday. But you promised to provide for me, Lord. Yeah, but you didn't listen. Is this because God is petty? No. But because God's blessings often come through his commandments. That the commandment is itself the blessing that God wants to give you. 1 John 5, 3 says, The commandments of God are not burdensome. In Matthew 11, Jesus said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Consider God's commandments in the Bible to work hard, to earn what you make, and to save it and be careful with it. Is that a burdensome commandment? It can feel like it. But when you're not broke, it's like, all right, this was the blessing. By obeying God's commandments to take good care of my money, I now have the blessing that God is going to bring into my life. He commands us to save sex for marriage. You do that, and that does not always feel like a good commandment. But then you come to the other side, there's no guilt attached to your relationship. There's no children that are not part of your family. There's, you know, no diseases. There's no exes to worry about. And you can enter into that relationship joyfully and freely. And then it turns out that commandment was the blessing all along. His commandments are blessings. How about the command to hold your temper? does not always feel good to hold your temper. Anybody else ever get in the car and, or the shower and you, you tell that guy what you really thought? Amen. The temper. But the Lord says, hold your temper. I, I've known people that will come and say, well, I'm just going through a rough time. I lost my job. You know, my boss fired me. Oh, he fired you. Yeah, he's crazy. Well, what happened? Well, I yelled at him and cussed him in the face. And, well, then, you, no, that didn't happen to you. You did that. That's your fault. Well, he shouldn't have, he shouldn't have flown off the handle. He shouldn't have gotten mad at you getting mad, is what you're trying to say there. Holding your temper, not saying just what you think right in the moment, not posting something the second you hear something about it with half of the facts. And you get to the other side and you go, I'm really glad that I kept my temper. Because that turns out, I'm not the one having to fight for my life here. The commandments of God are blessings of their own. And even when you fail, there's grace, of course. But we're supposed to start from a position of obedience, And you know what is so funny? We take credit for the blessings that we get for obeying God's rules, like we did something. Well, what has made you such a successful businessman? Well, you see, uh, I work very hard for everything I get, and I I rise early, and I work hard, and I save, and I, I don't overextend myself on credit, and you know, I'm just a wise person. God's like, I taught you that. Those are my rules, and that's my blessing for you. Don't you strut around like you did something. Well, what, what has made your church such a thriving church? Well, you know, I have this conviction that we ought to serve God first and pray and study the Bible and evangelize. God goes, those are my ideas. You didn't come up with that. Don't take credit for what I did. 
It's the Lord who has taught us. And the wilderness ought to teach us that God's daily provision is a good enough reason to obey Him. When I obey God, things go better for me. So obey God. We just have to do what somebody else says. Yeah, because you're clueless. <laughs> well, man is the measure of all things, and I, I have an inconquerable soul. No, you don't. All right? You are, you are dust and ashes, the Bible says. You need a holy God to teach you how to live rightly. And if you obey him, it's going to go well for you. Verse 31, now the house of Israel called its name manna, or in Hebrew there, just man. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Verse 36 is my life verse right there. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. <laughs> I love those little notes because they show us that Moses probably wrote this down initially, but then as time went on and Joshua or Ezra, whoever was bringing this together, they're like, what's an omer? I don't know what an omer is. So they had like a little footnote, verse 36. An omer is about one-tenth of an ephah. Of course, we don't know what an ephah is either, so it doesn't help us today. But like I said, an omer is approximately about two liters. So they take a jar of manna, which they collect, and they later on, after they build the Ark of the Covenant, they will put it inside the Ark of the Covenant, along with the tablets of the law and the, bud, the rod of Aaron that budded. Hebrews 9 verse 4 tells us it was a golden jar. And it is interesting because it says that they, they may, may see it so that they can see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. So that raises the question, were these items brought out on certain occasions for the people to see? There is one time that we know somebody looked into the Ark of the Covenant and was struck dead for it. So perhaps there was a time and a place for it, but just one of those questions that we have. Now, after 40 years of manna, it might seem silly to keep one jar, but this was for posterity, wasn't it? To save the testimony for later generations. Are you willing to hold up God's little miracles as marks of his faithfulness? We shouldn't be so obsessed with the big, scary testimony where, you know, I was about to you know, blow up the Capitol building and then God struck me with lightning and now I, I'm a Christian. Oh, those are great testimonies. But how about the times where God just gave you that check just in the nick of time? How about the time you were about to have, you had a deadline coming due, but you knew that your, your check wasn't going to come in until a few days later and you were sitting around the house fretting about it and then the check just came a few days early and you're not quite sure why? Well, that's so small. No, it's not. That's huge. How about the time that you were really, really sick and the Lord delivered you out of it? Do you testify to the Lord of how he healed you? This is how you build faith in the next generation. Psalm 37, 25, he said, I've been young and I've been old, but I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. We've got to keep these stories alive and share them with each other and share them with our children. Because these everyday miracles are marks of his power and his faithfulness. We've got to remember. So that when the young person coming up says, why should I serve the Lord? You've got a whole long list of stories. You've got a jar of manna to bring out and say, do you know what God has done for this family? Do you know what God has done for this church? Every step of the way. Remember how excited we were? Some of y'all will when we went into that hotel. 
when we went to the hotel over in at the Hilton and we were so excited and they had we were we were like look they they even set up the chairs for us that's so great this is wonderful and you know over time you can start to go Oh, this room is just really small. And the Lord's like, don't you remember how much you prayed for that and how much you wanted it? Don't you remember how much you needed that car? He said, Lord, please send me that car. And then you got it. said, this old piece of junk. <laughs> remember what God has done. Serve the Lord and show others why you serve the Lord. Don't be afraid to tell the small stories. Well, chapter 17, I knew this was going to be a Stretch to finish it, but let's go ahead. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Well, this should be no problem. They've had this trouble before, right? They've learned their lesson. No. <laughs> Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Rephidim, where you locate that place, is entirely dependent on where you put the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. We have no other indications of where it would be. But again, there's no water to drink. Again, they complain against Moses. And this time the complaints are so violent that Moses is afraid for his life. And God sends him to strike the rock before all the people to bring forth water. And another miracle. This is the rock of Horeb. Horeb is the region, perhaps the mountain range of Mount Sinai, which was the specific peak. But we're going to call this location from now on Masa, which means testing, or Meribah, which means quarreling. And later on, the psalmist, especially in the book of Hebrews, will use this event as the defining example of a lack of faith in the Lord, questioning as if he was even among them. Like there's a pillar of cloud and fire. You mean the Lord's not here. There was manna on the ground this morning. The Lord parted the Red Sea and sent ten plagues and delivered you with the blood of the Passover lamb. What do you mean is God really among us? Well, I might ask us the same thing. How can we doubt God's love and provision after what Jesus has done for us at the cross? There they are, wondering if God really cares or really loves them when right beside them is the rock that's going to bring forth enough water for millions of people. And Paul would compare this rock in 1 Corinthians to Christ, the one who is always with you, always ready to provide. In this life, we're going to have times of deprivation. We're going to have times of fear. As God leads us through the wilderness, your faith is going to be tested. And you've got to trust God to bring you through and to rely on the everyday miracles to build your faith for the big ones that you're going to need. Hebrews 3 would refer to this passage and said, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. There's always water ready to come from the rock because the rock is always with you. If you believe that God has saved you from sin, why would you doubt him for smaller things? 
Your life is a journey. It's, it's not one big moment and then it's over. It's episodes. There's steps and it's not always easy. But you're surrounded by small miracles of faithfulness and provision and you've got to let those build your faith so that when you do have a day where there's no water, you have full faith. And if your faith was shown to be weak during your last test, by the way, the last time you were tested with deprivation, hunger, thirst, fatigue, sickness, and you were shown to have a sincere lack of faith in the Lord, it's time to recommit and start looking afresh at the little things that God does for you. Then when the frightening moments come, you will know that God has led you there and you're going to trust him to bring you through it without fear.